Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Ed Han, your host for tonight's unpublished TV panel discussion. Our topic tonight, again, focusing on foreign affairs and the fractured relationship between Canada and China. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote and then email your MP to tell them why. Our question this week is if the accusations were cons- were true, should Canada scale back on its trade relationship with China? At unpublished.vote, you will find our podcast on this issue as well as articles, opinion pieces, and research on the fractured relationship. So let's get started. Joining us tonight, Charles Burton, a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and former counselor at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. Sarah Kudalakos is the Executive Director and the Chief Operating Officer of the Canada-China Business Council. Gar Party, former Director General of Consular Affairs, and Daryl Bricker, Global Chief Executive Officer of Ipsos Public Affairs. And on our unpublished.vote question, 87% of our viewers and listeners, they want a rethink of that relationship. And Sarah, let's, we'll start with you. How would you characterize the business relationship between Canada and China in the last two years? So the business relationship between the two countries, uh, you know, if you go back to late 2018, was at the best it had been in a long time. Uh, But the political tensions, the detentions of Meng Wanzhou and the two Michaels uh, and uh, the resulting strained political relationship has definitely put tension on that. Um, And I look I look at the overall trade numbers, but I also look at our exports because Canada's exports to China are uh, really where the potential is. And uh, they've definitely were impacted uh, in 2019 and in early 2020 by COVID. They have started to recover in the last couple of months to levels um, resembling where they were in 2018. But it's a tough relationship. And how your business is doing in China depends very much on uh, the sector that you're in. Oh, really? I would. So the political climate doesn't have much of an impact. It it, it does have an impact, but mm-hmm. not on every sector. Um, and you know, a lot of Chinese, a lot of Canadian companies are selling to Chinese consumers. So if you if they're buying beef or lobster or you know winter coats. That actually hasn't had as much of an impact as as you might expect. If what you're selling requires intricate relationships government to government, then it's been a bit uh, tougher. And where a lot of opportunity is in services, where it requires people going back and forth, travel has been impacted first by the the tensions and now, of course, by, by COVID. And so in a nutshell, how your business might do in China depends very much on China's economic policy. Are you in a sector that's in demand either by the growth in consumption or by China's development plans? Charles, how would you say the government has handled the the China file so far in the last two years? Well, I mean, considering that we've been subject to arbitrary violations of the, you know, of the, of the, Canola Sea contracts, uh, hostage diplomacy, and and that our government has not made any uh, more than rhetorical response to China's um, violations of the rules based order, in particularly the the genocide in in northwest China 
against the Turkic Muslims and and the violation of the Sino-British Joint Declaration that Canada endorsed when it was lodged with the uh, UN prior to the reversion of of Hong Kong sovereignty to to China, and uh, in terms of pervasive cyber espionage that we have not responded to, the um, the lack of our ability to control um, the uh, the sale of restricted technologies to agents of the Chinese state, pervasive uh, cyber um, espionage inside Canada, and harassment of persons of Chinese origin who uh, hold political opinions that the Chinese government uh, doesn't, uh, uh, you know, finds offensive to their to their overall interests, um, and and our inability, I think, to to consider um, legislation along the lines of the Australian Foreign Influence uh, Foreign Inter Influence uh, Transparency Scheme Act to try and uh, and uh, allow for more transparency among persons in. Uh, policy making decisions in terms of their receipt of benefits from um, foreign states. All of these things are, are, are shortcomings of, of our government's approach and, uh, and really most unfortunate because uh, the less we do, um, the, the more it, it emboldens the Chinese government to hold on to Kovrigan's favor because this you know, hostage diplomacy from their perspective is working. And in terms of, um, you know, not being engaging in any reciprocal actions against China's um, violations of uh, of contracts for export of uh, of agricultural commodities on no um, valid basis whatsoever, uh, we embolden them to do more of that. So, I, I couldn't rate our government's uh, response to uh, China very highly. And for me, the real question is, why is it that our government doesn't defend the interests of Canada internationally in a way um, comparable to that that's being done by countries that have a much higher, greater trade dependence on China, such as Australia? Now, Daryl, your, uh, your company, Epsis, has taken a look at the situation. Canadians are paying attention to this, are they not? Yeah, they very much are. And uh, what we've seen is that uh, as the... Uh, level of interest in the relationship, the amount of uh, activity that we're seeing in the news, for example, about China and Canada's relationship uh, gets higher. What ha ends up happening is Canadian public opinion in th at this time tends to get lower. Uh, so Canadians are um, uh, not very happy with the Chinese relationship, aren't trusting of the Chinese government at all, but they recognize that uh, not having a trading relationship, uh, a functioning trading relationship with China is not a great thing for our country. So it's not something that we could uh, sort of strike back at China and expect that there would be no consequences. So we actually have, uh, I would say, in spite of what I usually hear from experts, where they say Canadians don't know anything about this, when you actually go out and you probe public opinion, Canadians actually have a fairly balanced perspective on this and a fairly sophisticated uh, perspective. They believe that uh, that China is not behaving appropriately, that Canada needs to do something about it, but by the same token that when we do something about it, there could be consequences for our trading relationship. And in, in you you talked to Canadians about how they thought the government was dealing with the issue. They was somewhat favorable. Yeah, you know, at, yeah. at least as favorable as just about anything else that they're mm -hmm. doing right now. So uh, Canadians, as I said before, are are somewhat forgiving to the government on this, basically because they understand that it's complicated. Gar Party, uh, you have come out and said, Canada pay the ransoms. Why are you saying that? When I say that. I think that's the only way that I think we can move forward. As long as this issue stays at the center of the table, all of the things that have been talked about so far 
basically nothing gets changed. And so when we said that must we solve this uh, uh, particular issue and solve it as quickly as we can, we are the government itself the hostage to this particular situation. How we do it, you know, most governments have dealt with all of them in these kinds of issues over the years. Basically, you pay ransom. Every government in the world pays ransom at one sort or another. When you pay it, it's the only issue that really needs to be up to negotiation. You do it, get it off the table so you can get back to some of the issues that we talked about earlier. As long as this stays, you're not going to get back to the other issues. You know, Sarah, as the, as the head of the Canada China Business Council, it has to be difficult to try and conduct business when, you know, obviously both sides politically are, are, are not exactly getting along. How, how do you do it? Well, you know, you, you do the best you can. Our, our members tell us, and they've told us ever since, um, you know, the Hmong incident, that they feel like we're in the middle of a U.S.-China sandwich. And, uh, you know, the situation that we're in is not entirely of Canada's doing. Um, and the U.S.-China tension has a lot of impact on companies. So an interesting thing we found in uh, in our survey earlier this year is that the U.S.-China trade war is one of uh, is is a significant factor in impact on business, mostly negative, not a hundred percent though. You know, if you're selling mm-hmm. lobsters, actually, you did very well last year because of U.S. Uh, tariffs as a part of the trade war. Um, but I think you know the business community they appreciate stability. They want to be able to predict what will happen, and this relationship has been very unpredictable. So. Some companies are saying, I'm not going to travel because I want to make sure that I am not, um, you know, uh, the next Michael. Others say, um, you know, I don't want my, comp- my, my product to be the next one hit by arbitrary tariffs or, or non-tariff barriers like canola. And so that level of uncertainty puts a dent in what was decent progress toward helping to diversify our trade relationship. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier about um, dependence on China. We are not dependent on China for our trade. Only 4% of our exports go to China. The U.S., which is in the middle of a, you know, of a fist-to-fist war with China, sends 8% of its exports to China. If we were simply to double our 4 to 8, it would add $25 billion to our economy. Um, but it's tough to convince companies to make that grow when there is the uncertainty that exists. The, uh, Charles, America is the wild card in this, isn't it? No, I, I wouldn't say so. I, I think that this is essentially the fault of China. The United States um, you know, made a, an extradition request in accordance with our treaty uh, based on you know, valid concerns that, that are being tested in the B.C. Superior Court. Um, the, the idea that we're caught in a sandwich and that they're there's a moral equivalency between the two pieces of bread just isn't there. The United States is not engaged in anything like the kind of, of horrendous um, treatment, asymmetrical, um, unfair and non-reciprocal treatment that we're getting from China. I think there's a, you know, there's a general um, uh, discomfort among Canadians with uh, President Trump for very valid reasons, but the United States is not simply uh, Trump. It's a, it's a democracy based on a on rule of law and balance between the judicial, the congressional, and the presidential branches, and therefore, I, I really don't think that we should be focused on on 
on trying to to dismiss our responsibility for addressing what China's been doing uh, by 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 sloughing it off on on the United States. I, I just uh, I just don't think that that makes any any rational sense because the United States is our strongest trade partner and our best ally. Mm-hmm. And we share values with the United States. The United States does not have uh, a million people in in concentration camps. Uh, the United States has has simply not been engaged in the kinds of of um, of gross violations of international law that we're seeing from China. So, you know, I think that we have to deal with this as Canada to China, and it's Canada's responsibility to respond to defend our interests and not simply, you know, suggest that these things happen because there's a superpower rivalry between the United States and China. Daryl, when uh, we looked at your numbers and it was 8 and 10 wanted a, uh, wanted uh, less trade with, uh, with uh, China, with this type of sentiment uh, overwhelmingly against, uh, against, how can politicians react when they have, you know, an electorate that says, we don't want to deal with China anymore, but yet you still kind of want to, you, you still want to do that. How, how, how do they sort of walk that uh, tightrope? Well, there's no easy way. I mean, the, the, the biggest issue here is making sure that people understand what it is that we're dealing with and, and, and essentially trying to bring them in the room and educate them as to what the, uh, what the forces are that we're dealing with here and particularly what the, uh, the payoffs and, and, and the risks are. Uh, just simply going out and sort of making a plat- platitudinous statement and expecting Canadians are going to trust you in this current environment is not not going to work. Uh, so uh, Canadians, I think, you know, to the extent that you treat them like adults, you speak to them plainly about what the facts are on this, and you really do effectively make your case and you trust them with the facts, uh, you have a potential to bring them along on some of these issues. But too often when it comes to the foreign policy world, I think that uh, uh, the, the general perception of, um, of uh, our, our political leaders is that these things are too sophisticated to trust uh, average Canadians with. I, I, actually, I think they couldn't be, uh, couldn't be more wrong on this. I, I don't see, for example, uh, the idea that you'd be able to pay the ransom in China going over in any way politically in this country. Um, unless somebody is prepared to really make a very strong case in public as to why this is the only way forward. Uh, the political consequences, particularly as we, we're moving into a potential election period, and quite frankly, we should be treating 2021 as a, as a, as a total election period. Uh, it's either going to be the election or it's going to be the run-up to the election. A very, very sensitive political issue like this will uh, not go over well unless Canadians have a very good understanding of why it was the only way to deal with this particular issue. Gar, when we, we look, sure, okay, jump in. If I might just add, we asked the business community about the Canadian government's strategy for China, and uh, you know what if they understood what it was, if it was clear. And we heard from the majority of respondents that they had no idea what the Canadian government's strategy was, and it kind of aligns with Daryl's comment that you know if people aren't assumed to under to be able to understand what's happening maybe it just isn't isn't voiced and what we heard was they wanted the government to have a strategy they were not unanimous in you know we should be soft on china or we should be hard on china they just wanted it to be clear uh gar with uh canada in this situation with china do we have allies that can step in help out support in some some way or form not of any value in terms of dealing with particular issues. Uh, the, if you look at, and I think it's 
we're looking at it to some extent without understanding the region in which all of this is taking place and the changes that have occurred back in China. You know, if you go back to 1968 when we start shutdown, down, we stopped and the relationship with China, the diplomatic relationship with China. If you looked at China in terms of what was going on, we were in the midst of the Cultural Revolution and millions of, of Chinese were, were being killed or deported or exiled from the country and everything else. We are party to the emergence of China out of the chaos that was China for the longest period back in 1970s. We create, we help create the China that we have to deal with today. And to say that we can, that the superpower relationship is not important. The Chinese have a very large objective, uh, probably the first objective on their, on their foreign policy agenda is to get the Americans out of Asia. And that's basically what they're trying to do. They don't want it's they're, they're going, they're coming on, they see themselves as the power in Asia and they don't want foreigners. The Chinese, the other thing that they've done here, they work with time more than we do here. We work on small pieces of time here, basically election periods. And as a result of that, in effect, policy does not sustain itself over that kind of time in, in our system. So you've got to stand back from this sort of thing and look at it in a longer time frame. And the other thing to bear in mind here, various issues that are mentioned here, the one that struck me is in terms of some of the uh, supposedly the actions that China is taking against the soybean issue. Well, at the same time that that's the, they were cutting back in soybean, they increased their imports of barley. These kinds of things are going. The Chinese are not going to injure themselves in this kind of uh, a, a problem, but we can injure ourselves here if we're not very careful in terms of what goes on. So you've got to be very careful in what you can do. You take the issues that you can deal with, we can deal with the two micros, solve that issue very quickly, get it out of the get it off the agenda, and in effect you need to talk to dealing with some of the other issues here that other people are talking As long as it stays, you've got to follow. You're watching Unpublished TV as we talk about the Canada-China relationship, which is deteriorating. And uh, Charles Burton is joining us uh, on the panel, a former counselor at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. Sarah Kutalakos, Executive Director of the Canada-China Business Council. Gar Party, you just heard, heard from him, Director General of the Consular Affairs. And Daryl Bricker, Global Chief Executive Officer of Ipsos Public Affairs. And, you know, let's uh, go to uh, uh, Charles right now. And, you know, do we know what China's ambitions are? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, you know, in the uh, October 2017 uh, speech to the, uh, uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party's um, Congress, the uh, Party General Secretary Xi Jinping made it very clear that, that China hopes to create a community of the common destiny of mankind, which is an, a, a new world order based on China's rise and the, and the decline of the United States and replacement of the uh, Western-dominated institutions like the WTO and the UN with China-based institutions buttressed by the Belt and Road Initiative, the massive global infrastructure project, which all the belts um, lead to China and all the roads lead to China. And so, you know, from that point of view, there's a desire to redress the humiliation that the Chinese Communist Party focuses on after the Opium War of 1840, and for China to resume what 
is regarded as its historical place as the dominant civilization on the planet to which all other countries should be sub, sub, subordinate. And that's their plan. I, I don't think it's a feasible plan. I don't think the Belt and Road Initiative is uh, is, is going to uh, fulfill its promise anytime soon. And I'm not expecting that that we will all um, have to give up our our liberal democratic ideals to authoritarian one-party state um, dominated uh, global order. But that's certainly the the way that, that China um, wants to see it. I would say in terms of challenging this, uh, you know, Canada has uh, a couple of options, one being um, offering safe harbor to, to those uh, people in Hong Kong who are um, at political risk. You know, there are 900,000 Canadians who speak Cantonese, um, 600,000 of them here in Canada, 300,000 of them resident in Hong Kong. We should be protecting them. And secondly, I think the most effective measure would be to put Chinese officials who are culpable for gross violations of human rights onto the Magnitsky list that we have already um, officials of other countries, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Sudan, and so on, on that list. And that list has an impact because Mr. Xi, as we can see from the Meng Wanzhou case, needs to protect the elite element of his party. And if the Magnitsky list means that certain um, important people or representatives of important factions within the party cannot come to Canada and cannot access their, their resources here and cannot use Canada as a bolt hole against factional struggle, then uh, that really does put pressure on him if if he's seen by those elements as having mismanaged the relationship with China. And if you look at Ms. Meng alone, you know, she has two large mansions in Vancouver, one worth $5 million, the other worth $13 million. When she was detained at the airport, she was found to be carrying seven passports, and we have evidence of an eighth public purposes passport. People who, you know, are not intending to to seek refuge in our country don't carry, um, or somewhere out of China, have no need to carry multiple passports and maintain uh, significant amounts of resources um, in safety abroad. So from that point of view, I, I do think that we have to take advantage of our knowledge of how the Chinese system works to exert the, the pressure that would lead to the release of Kovrikin's favor. And I think by not doing it, we um, we embolden the Chinese regime to continue along this line of, of uh, an asymmetrical relationship where they exploit uh, Canada's weakness. Daryl, we have a uh, new conservative leader uh, in Canada right now. I- I'm wondering, does that have any, did you look at anything like that? Would that have any other impact on the relationship? Or does it, would that be something to maybe restart a relationship? Well, it, it remains to be seen, but I, I, you know, a, a new government could potentially have a, a, another impact. But I'd like to raise one more issue here, and mm-hmm. it's one that, you know, when we get into these discussions about China, it always baffles me why it doesn't come up. But China um, is in a demographic death spiral right now. Their birth rate is 1.5. They're going to lose half, half of their population this century. They have the most rapidly aging large population in the world. While they may have a whole series of external ambitions, and we might like to be talking about them as though they were a population that's continuing to grow or is in some form of, 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 of stability, they're not. They're in a, in, a, in, a, in a situation that is going to be extremely challenging for that government. 
in not a very long period of time. This is a country that has no national welfare programs, no old age pension programs, and they have the most rapidly aging old population on the planet. Wow. And those that, are just, those are just facts. That's, uh, I had no idea about that. That really, uh, that <laughs> puts it uh, right into focus now. And, uh, and these are based on the numbers, by the way, that they, that we can get. The situation is probably even worse. Wow. Gar, and I'm going to have to have you uh, try and get your mic unmuffled. It was a little muffled when we were talking earlier. Uh, you know, when, when you're dealing with Canada and China in, in a relationship, I guess if you want to keep that relationship, you want to find common ground. How do you find common ground when you really don't get along with that other person? Gar? Hello, Gar. Is that better sound? There you go. That's a bit better. Anyway. No, I just want to go back to a couple of things that Charles said there. You mean he listed off a number of small sticks that can keep the Chinese up about, but it's not going to do anything in resolving anything in, 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 in terms of what we're trying to do with today. It's in the fact that we help the, we've got 300,000 Canadians who live in Hong Kong. They've been living there now, I think, at least for 15, 20 years. There, and that, those are decisions made by Canadians, and they can come back any time they want. If you're going to do what the Brits have just suggested here in terms of uh, opening up, the Brits have a different responsibility to a large number of uh, people who live in Hong Kong that are different. They basically, the British denied them citizenship at a time when they were giving citizenship to other people. And so you've got that kind of an issue. But I don't think that's going to solve any of our problems. If you have put sanctions against the individual leaders in China, that is not going to be a the issue that we're dealing with right now. And to suggest that the Americans are not responsible for some of the issues that we have to deal with, I think we're just closing our eyes to the issues that are fundamental to what the Chinese are doing. And you asked me earlier about allies out there in the yep. world here, including the Chinese. There, we have no allies. The Chinese have been probably, in terms of having a, a foreign policy, have been one of the most successful, I think, in the history of the 20th century. They have reached out into the world, and there isn't a part of the world that the Chinese are not in effect welcome. You look at Africa as one of them, even in Latin America and the Caribbean, you get the sort of thing. The Middle East, the Chinese run probably the most successful foreign policy in the Middle East. It, it's essential for them to run good policy, but they've got relations as good with Israel as they do with Saudi Arabia. And they exploit that. Europe has got a problem. But the Europeans are not the Europeans right now. They're not going to rush to our aid in supporting us with any problems that we have with China. We have to solve our own problems, and if we don't solve them, they're going to get worse. All right, now, uh, Sarah, that, I want to go back to what Daryl said about how how much this population is aging in China. And you know, if you're you know, obviously you represent the Canada-China Business Council. If you want to go do business over there. Was that new information to you? And has that changed your tact? No, it's not new information no. at all. And uh, and so, you know, you talked about where you find common ground. Mm -hmm. Well, in the business community, we also think about, you know, where are Chinese needs? And uh, you see a lot of success of uh, equipping people with insurance policies, life insurance policies, for example, because that social safety net hasn't been there. Um, you know, our education system, which has 140,000 students each year from China, 
that contribute billions of dollars to the Canadian economy. That's part of every Chinese family's goal of how do I make sure that my, uh, you know, that my children can do better than I can. Uh, there, so there are lots of areas like that where you can find common ground. One of our members, um, which is a, a spinoff of a hospital in Manitoba, uh, runs a series of, uh, they call them the Canada Wellness Centers. And even in the midst of this bilateral tension, they have not changed their name. And they're focused on chronic disease prevention and care because the incidence of high blood pressure and diabetes and, and diseases like that are so prevalent. So, you know, knowing that if China does fail, if it doesn't succeed in its economic development goals, not that we're going to take over the world kind of goals that Charles is talking about, but, you know, they've pulled 800 million people out of poverty and the goal is to help create, help keep people's salaries rising and their standards of living rising. Uh, so why wouldn't we want to take advantage of that now? And when we have high quality food and resources and other products uh, where we can be a reliable supplier, we should be selling those now, particularly with a consumer population that's growing very quickly. But after that population uh, falls off a cliff, the demand might not be there. We should be taking advantage of that now while the window is open. What do you think, Charles? Well, I think that the demographic issue is is certainly there. Um, you know, now that I'm over 65, uh, the government of Yunnan has offered me a retiree's um, residence visa. I guess they want to bring in oldsters. That seems to be <laughs> counterintuitive to what you've been saying. But no, I, I think that, that the demographic issue is there. Um, as someone who was educated in China, most of my classmates are, you know, have one child. And in the case of my demographic, a lot of those children are living abroad and are unable to provide the traditional um, Chinese family of the young supporting the old, leaving the um, the old people at, at loose ends economically and, and I would say just in terms of their their spiritual life. So, you know, it, it, is, uh, it, it, it is a regrettable factor. The, the one-child policy turns out to have been, um, you know, they had for many years uh, from 1979 until quite recently, a highly restricted birth control policy. And, and uh, it turns out that this policy um, is leading to unanticipated uh, uh, disastrous consequences and, and really a sort of human tragedy for, for old people who are, who are alone and, and without resources. So, you know, I, I do think that that is a factor. I'm, I'm not sure that, that, uh, that uh, Canada selling private insurance in China is the solution. I think the solution is in a country which is now among the most unfair in terms of distribution of wealth, you know, your 86 US dollar billionaires in the National People's Congress and so on, that the Chinese government should be doing much more serious measures to transfer wealth from the, from the wealthy to support the poor. And this is particularly a, a tragic situation in rural areas where a lot of the young people have left and are leaving behind old people and the pensions that the government is offering are, are pathetically small and completely inadequate to them being able to sustain dignified and, uh, and uh, reliable, um, you know, lives mm -hmm. where, where they have a sense of confidence and where they're able to receive uh, medical treatment as, as they need it. So, you know, I, I think that Daryl brings up a very important and fundamental point. I think that, you know, as someone who lived in China when when it was a Marxist period before uh, opening and reform, when social justice and equality were 
were the watchwords of the regime. It, I, I feel very disappointed that under the current regime, there, there does seem to be a, a lack of willingness to, to accommodate um, poverty alleviation and, and to make society um, you know, more just. Charles, uh, we'll leave the last word with you. Uh, folks, I want to thank you for joining us on Unpublished TV. Uh, great conversation once again. Charles Burton, uh, former counselor of the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. Sarah Kudalakos, executive, executive director and the chief operating officer of the Canada-China Business Council. Gar Party, former director general of consular affairs. And Daryl Bricker, he is the global chief executive officer of Epsis Public Affairs. And coming up on the next Unpublished TV proroguing parliament and whether it'll give the grits a bit of a respite from the wee scandal i want to thank you for watching unpublished tv i'm ed hand stay safe